Good morning, and again, welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. Uh, We are the South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church, and we are gathered in this place to continue doing together uh, what God calls us to do all the time, even when we aren't together, and that is to worship Him with our whole lives. Today we are embarking on a new series of studies in the New Testament, and uh, it's on the book called Acts, which if you are new to the Bible, is located just after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, as this is a a first sermon in that book, um, we're going to do this morning will be uh, fairly introductory in nature, which means uh, a lot of what will be said will will fall in the category of background. Um, And it may at times seem a little technical, but I hope also that it will be, by the end, you will be uh, intrigued and leaning forward and looking forward to seeing what God has to show us in this uh, unique and very important part of the New Testament, the only book like this in the New Testament. So that's what we'll be looking at, the book of Acts together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please... Help us now as we turn our attention to a new portion of your word this morning. There is so much that we can learn from the book of Acts. And at the same time, due to the historical nature of this book, and because of the uniqueness of the events that it describes for us, there's also great potential for misreading and misapplying the things that we see along the way. Help us then to see only what you want us to see. And as a result, to know you better, to love you more, to serve you with greater joy because of all that you're going to show us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. What is the book of Acts? What are we to think about it? Before we answer that question, perhaps it's helpful to say a little bit about what the book of Acts isn't. First of all, the book of Acts isn't a letter. It's not like the book of Romans, which we've just studied for the past two plus years. It's not like Galatians. It's not like Second Thessalonians. It's not like Second Corinthians. It's not a letter that's addressed to a specific church. It's not a letter that's responding to some situation that's come up in a particular congregation of God's people. It's not trying to settle an issue or answer a question that's been addressed directly to uh, an apostle, which happens sometimes in Paul's letters. It wasn't written to provide a detailed theological summary of some core Christian doctrine. So it's, it's not that sort of thing. It's not a letter. It's also not a gospel in other words, it's not like Matthew or Mark. It's, it's not a, a highly selective account of Jesus' life designed to highlight the three-year ministry and teaching of Jesus, culminating in his death and his resurrection. To be sure, that core truth is very much at the heart of all that takes place in Acts, but Acts isn't specifically about that. However, while Acts isn't a gospel, it actually is attached to a gospel. And maybe you know this. Specifically, it's attached to the gospel of Luke. If you read the introduction to Luke, 
And then the conclusion to Luke in chapter 24, and then the introduction to Acts. What you discover in reading those things is that the same author has clearly written both of these books, Luke and Acts, and has linked them together, is addressing them to the same person. Listen first to Luke's introduction. And because of that, actually, Luke and Acts coming from one author means that Luke is the most prolific writer in the New Testament, not Paul. Luke 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke is a physician. More importantly, he's a companion of the Apostle Paul. And we know that he accompanied Paul on at least three of his journeys. And uh, that person, that Luke, that physician, sits down to write an account for his friend Theophilus, which means friend of God or lover of God. And he does so apparently because Theophilus appears to be struggling a bit. He seems to be wavering perhaps lacking in certainty, lacking in assurance in his faith. So Luke helps him out here, and he gives him, first of all, the account of Jesus' life. He wants him to have greater certainty about these things, most likely meaning historical certainty. So he writes an account that is orderly, uh, in some ways more orderly in that way, as he puts it. And then at the end of Luke's gospel, so he does that, he presents a gospel, goes all the way through the life of Jesus, gets to the end, chapter 24, After Jesus' resurrection, then Luke records these words from Jesus to his still frightened disciples. Then he uh, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, this is Jesus speaking, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So that's right at the end of Luke's gospel. That's how he's closing it out. And you see the language there, right? You see this language of summarizing the gospel, the language about repentance and forgiveness of sins being proclaimed to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You see Jesus promising to send the promise of his Father to them and the instruction to stay put until they're clothed with power from on high, which is what the promise of the Father is all about. And that's how the gospel of Luke finishes. Now listen to the introduction to Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Acts picks up, Acts picks up right where Luke leaves off. And so it is that Luke and Acts go together. They're like a two-volume set. Um, There's an opening account and there's a sequel. And so, as I said, Acts is is very much attached to a gospel written by the same author as Luke. But it isn't a gospel and it's not a letter. So what is it? Well, essentially it's history. It's the only history book in the New Testament. In fact, it is the only historical writing of its kind by any Christian writer, either within the Bible or outside the Bible, for the first 100 years. The life of the church. So it's unique. And it's history, but it's not just matter-of-fact history. And it's not comprehensive, sweeping history. It's very selective, and it's very limited history. Firstly, in terms, it's limited in terms of the period of time that it covers. It was likely written around or before 64 AD. The reason for that conclusion are several, but center mainly on the fact that there is no mention of the persecutions instigated by Nero in 64 AD, nor is there, which were horrible, nor is there any mention of the persecutions instigate, I'm sorry, of the outcome of Paul's Roman imprisonment. Right? So those are two realities, the Neronian persecution, Paul's imprisonment, the outcome of that. Two realities that you would think for sure Luke would have gotten around to mentioning if he knew the outcome, if he knew about him. So at any rate, the letter was likely written around or before 64 AD, and it covers a very small period of time. It actually covers roughly from 30 AD to 63 AD. So right from the cross, the resurrection... 30 plus years later, and that's all it covers. That little period of time. It's not just limited in terms of the period of time it covers. It's limited in its subject matter. Because even though in English it's titled The Acts of the Apostles, in in reality uh, it should be titled, it could be translated in other ways, it could be translated Some Acts of Some Apostles. Since it really only deals with Peter and John, James the Lord's brother, and Paul, the other apostles are left out. Even further, it only talks about the expansion of the gospel work to the north and to the west of Jerusalem. It doesn't say anything about the expansion of the gospel to the south or to the east of Jerusalem. So it's history. It's highly selective history. There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody writing anything makes decisions and selections. But Acts is highly selective. But then calling a history begs the question, a history of what? It's not really the history of the apostles in general, since so few are dealt with. And, uh, and, and so we can't say it's the history of that. Um, and even if we say it's the history of some of the apostles, even when you look at what he writes about them, they don't appear to be the main focus either. Is it the history of the church then? In some ways, yes. But even that seems to be not quite right. We, we do get the story of how the church got started and expanded and how it grew out of the gospel events and all that's crucial. But that doesn't seem to quite capture it or fully capture it. What does? 
Well, some uh, New Testament writers have agreed that a better way to think about Acts in this regard is to think about it as the history of the ongoing ministry of Jesus as carried out by his apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, if Luke describes his first volume, which is the Gospel of Luke, in this way, he says, it is all that Jesus began to do and teach. If he describes the first volume that way, then surely the implication is that his second volume, Acts, could be thought of as a continuation of what Jesus did and taught. Short, the whole of Luke Acts can be seen as the history of what Jesus did and taught, both in person, in the first part, and then through the agency of his spirit-empowered apostles in the second part. That's what the book of Acts is. The next question is, what's it saying? What's going on in here? Now, it's saying a lot of things. It's 28 chapters after all. But what are some of the main things it seems to be saying? What are its main emphases? Just a few things come to mind here. For one thing, the book of Acts is showing us the sovereign working out of the purposes of God in the affairs of human history. Let me give you one example. Acts 13, verses 44 to 48. Maybe you know this. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is, to you Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here's something that we saw in our study of Romans. The fact that God had planned from the beginning to use the rejection of the Jewish people as the human means by which the gospel was brought to the Gentiles. And Paul, as was his pattern, he went to the synagogue in Antioch to preach and teach. And there some, was some response from the Jews, but then there was this strong negative reaction and a subsequent rejection of Paul and Barnabas, who was with him. And Paul's response to all that was to say that it was necessary It was necessary that the word of God was first spoken to them. And the language of necessity is the language of plans and purposes. Why was it necessary to go first to the Jews? Because that's how God had ordained for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. In and through the rejection of his own people. And it was brought to the Gentiles in order that scripture might be fulfilled. And then if that isn't clear enough, there's this stunning statement about the Gentiles in verse 48. That as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were appointed. Appointed by whom? By God. According to what? According to his plan. You could hardly put it more boldly than that. That's just one example. There are numerous others. But Acts is written to display the outworking of the sovereign plan. And purpose of God. Even more, it's showing us that this plan and this purpose have been in motion all along, ever since the beginning, since Adam and Eve and Abraham and Noah, and all the way down. In other words, Acts is written to show the continuity of this ongoing story of God's people in Luke's day with God's people in every age. 
Acts is written to show that Christianity is organically connected to, and it comes out of all that God was doing in the Old Testament, and with his covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. Right? So what is going on with the church, is it's not that God is starting over, this is not plan B, this is God carrying on, carrying on without missing a step with his original plan on the original track that he has been on all along. Acts wants to make that clear. Even further, not only is Acts showing the outworking of God's sovereign purposes and the continuity between God's dealings with the church and God's dealings with Israel, it's also showing that those purposes always included the Gentiles. Right? That this was what God was heading for all along. And that too goes all the way back to the promises made to Abraham. And God said to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's a That's promises as old as the Bible. Somewhere along the way, the Jews had lost sight of it. But Acts is making it crystal clear. No, that was part of the deal all along. God's people was always going to be made up of the nations. Soberingly, a further message we get from Acts is that God's purposes, God's mission is always an opposed mission. There's that terrible, beautiful moment in Acts 14, 19 following when Paul is he's ministering in a place called Lystra. And some troublemakers from nearby cities uh, come and, and, um, and Paul, they stone Paul. And, uh, and he's injured so badly and hurts so, so badly that they think he's dead. They drag him out of town and they leave him there for dead. It's terrible. But then this beautiful thing happens when God supernaturally heals Paul, raises him up, and he marches right back into the city. That just drug him out. Back into the city. He spends the night. The next day he goes to a place called Derby to minister, and he comes right back to Lystra again for a third serving. And then he goes to the two cities from which the troublemakers came. I mean, talk about in your face. I mean, God just is not... He's, he's, he just goes right back at him. But Luke sums it up beautifully when he writes. He says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul taught the believers probably everywhere he went, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's one of the common and sobering and main messages of the book of Acts. God's mission is always an opposed mission, and we're going to see it uh, all over this book. And so his people, if the mission's opposed, that means his people are an opposed people. That's how it was with Jesus in his earthly-based ministry, and that's how it continues to be in his heavenly-based, spirit-empowered, apostle-delegated ministry. And yet along with that sobering message, there is another message in the book of Acts that comes through over and over again, and it's simply this. God's mission, while always opposed, is also ultimately unstoppable. God's work will prevail in nothing Nothing stops the work of God. It carries on even after Jesus is no longer personally here, after he ascends to heaven. The work of God carries on even when gifted and charismatic leaders like Stephen are martyred in Acts 7, or James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod in Acts 12. 
It carries on even when the chief agent and architect of the Gentile mission, Paul, is sidelined and imprisoned. It carries on when Peter and Paul are no longer on the scene. It will carry on until Jesus comes back. So the mission's opposed, but it's ultimately unstoppable. That's a little bit about what Acts is and what it's saying, but it helps also to think about what Acts is doing. What is, what is this book doing or trying to do? What's it trying to accomplish or bring about or encourage? For one thing, it's showing the reliability of the scriptures and of Jesus who quoted them. For example, see Luke 24 when Jesus said this. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And that same truth that beginning from Jerusalem there's a proclamation that goes to all the nations. That truth is echoed in Acts 1.8. And even more detailed. But one of the things that Acts is showing, if you look at Acts 8, it talks about Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. If you look at Acts 1.8, what you're looking at is the geographic progression of Christ's work as these scriptures are fulfilled, just as it's been written. And, and really, the, the basic structure of the book of Acts follows what you read in Acts 1.8. The mission to Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, the Gentile nations. And in showing these things, Acts is underscoring for its readers the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Scriptures and of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Another thing that Acts is doing is showing how the church figured out who it was and what it was supposed to be like, especially now that the Gentiles are part of the picture. And that was not an easy thing to do. They struggled with that. It, wasn't, it, it didn't happen overnight um, and it wasn't without a lot of battles and uh, heartache. But one writer says this, he says, one of the themes of Acts is the inclusion of the Gentiles and the people of God, and specifically the working out of that. And the essence of the problem was, was this. It was whether the rise of the church had produced a new society that was different from Judaism. Since the first Christians were Jews, you see, it was natural for them to live as Jews to circumcise their children, to live according to the law of Moses, etc. The problem or question that this created was twofold because when the Gentiles started coming into the church, they had questions. First of all, could Jewish Christians have fellowship with Gentiles without becoming unclean through contact with people who didn't observe the law of Moses? Secondly, could Gentiles come into a true relationship with God and his people merely by accepting Jesus as Messiah? That just seems so foreign to these Jewish Christians in many ways who were still unlearning a lot of things they needed to unlearn. They wanted to know whether or not these Gentile Christians were required to accept the Jewish law and circumcision. The book of Acts again shows how the church worked these things out. And it was a mixture of things. It was a mixture of direct action by God to make it clear to them what direction they should go. So so, uh, in Peter's vision in Acts 10... Where it's made very clear to him that all the things that were forbidden for him to eat before because of the Jewish food laws, that's all gone. And the table is now set for anything. So God's direct action shows on that. But then indirectly, God worked through his people. There was a council in Acts 15 
the Jerusalem Council, and they settled some of these questions there. Another thing that Acts is doing is putting an evangelistic tool in the hands of Christians by grounding the Christian faith in history, eyewitness history. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you read the preface to Luke's gospel, which when you think about it, is really a preface to the whole of Luke Acts, as one scholar describes it, then you will see, as you read it, you see how careful uh, Luke is in writing what he did. As Stott noted, he talked about, he says he talked about things that have been fulfilled. Right? So when you use the language of fulfillment and actions that are the fulfillment of something, then you're saying that you have knowledge of the scriptures. You're saying that you have knowledge that these things that you're witnessing are a fulfillment of that. A coming true of those things. So Luke talks about those kind of things. He was aware of the prophetic writings and how the events of the gospel were a fulfillment. Luke also talks about eyewitnesses. He uses the language of eyewitnesses. People who had seen and experienced the things spoken of. So, in other words, Luke used first-hand sources in his writing. He didn't use second- and third-hand sources. He didn't use hearsay. He talks about how carefully he investigated everything. In other words, even when he had eyewitness sources, he didn't just accept everything at face value. He apparently checked it out. He apparently dug into it to see. In in short, Luke was a careful historian. He has all the traits. He shows all the traits of a guy who was interested in getting to the bottom of things and knowing what really happened. And then he wrote down his results for all of us. You see, by being a careful historian of the gospel, Luke puts his readers, particularly skeptical readers, into something of a dilemma. He leaned on eyewitnesses for the writing of his gospel and sacred history. Eyewitnesses, many of whom, right? Many of whom would still be around when his works were written. We're talking about 30 to 63 AD. The scriptures talk about hundreds of people who are eyewitnesses to the events related to Jesus crucifixion and resurrection. And so if Luke was a poor historian, and we're just 30 years away from the resurrection, right? 30 years away at most from the resurrection. And if Luke was a poor historian, if he was just making stuff up out of thin air, inventing Christianity as he along, then it would have been easily proven. And his thesis would have been debunked quite quickly with so many eyewitnesses still alive and around. His work could have been easily dismissed and discarded and left on the garbage heap of history. But that isn't what happened. Luke, with his gospel, with Acts, has provided a reliable history of the expansion of Jesus' ongoing ministry. And in so doing, has provided a helpful tool for his readers, which includes you and me. Because the burden of proof is for the skeptic to explain why it is that if it didn't really happen, if it wasn't real, then that history, written as early as it was, wasn't completely laughed at and thrown out as a joke and discarded. History, including recent history, has shown that one of the most effective things you can do with your non-Christian family and friends is put a Bible in their hands and invite them to just read it. And in particular, to read the Gospel of Luke and its sequel, Acts. There are stories after story of people who did that very thing. They just read the Bible. And they were challenged. And they were disturbed. They were moved. And many of them persuaded by what they encountered in the text of Scripture. The Word of God really is, it really is, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
And Luke has provided a wonderful and helpful resource for God's people with what he's written. So, we should use it. Along the same lines of encouraging us in our witness, there are a number of sermons and speeches in the book of Acts. Uh, Actually, a third of the book of Acts is speeches and sermons. A full third of it is that. And there are a number of sermons and speeches that take place in a variety of situations and to different audiences, and they provide really examples of how you might go about sharing the gospel to people in related situations and similar circumstances. And finally, one of the main things that Acts is doing is encouraging Christians by showing them how their faith is grounded in something real, like history. The real history of Jesus the real history of the church that grew up as he continued working by his spirit through his apostles and disciples. Showing that God's plan is and was and is still on track. Showing that the scriptures are completely reliable. Showing that no amount of persecution or opposition can stop God's mission. And then along with that, Acts encourages Christians to engage in the mission of the church. Because we see the clear pattern of God not only commissioning and sending his disciples but also God equipping them to do what he calls them to do, chiefly through giving them his spirit with all the attendant fruits and gifts, the spirit that must and will indwell every person who calls on the name of the Lord in faith. All of which then brings us back to the text of Acts itself, to the preface, to these five verses that are printed in your bulletin and are setting the stage for what's to come. Just have a minute or two left. I just want to say... A couple things about that because it's important. This preface is very important. And in fact, I think it's brilliant the way that Luke does this. Luke says in verse 1, in the first book, that is in the book of Acts, I'm in in the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he summarizes the first volume of his gospel as all that Jesus began. And again, this implies that, that Acts is about what he continued to do and teach. He did that, and it says, until the day when he was taken up, which refers to the ascension, right? Jesus going to the right hand of God the Father after his resurrection. And with those words, he marks the boundaries of Jesus' earthly ministry, starting with his birth, ending with his ascension. But here's the thing. Before he returned to his Father, he had some business to take care of. These verses make clear that he only ascended after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so as these verses make clear, after Jesus' resurrection... After his resurrection, but before he returned to his father, he was busy. He was busy. For almost six weeks, he was busy. Forty days. And if you want to look at what Luke wrote in chapter 24 of his gospel, you might get the impression that all of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances took place on the same day. But Acts makes it clear that that was not the case at all. Jesus apparently appeared to them and kept appearing to them for 40 days after the resurrection, and as he did, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He was getting them ready to take over. He was preparing them to carry on in his place as his agents. He was giving them, as Keller notes, the information 
He was giving them the teaching they needed to carry out their commission. But they needed more than information. They needed power. They needed equipping. They needed gifts and strength and perseverance and endurance. They needed a helper. And he had promised them one before in an upper room on the night he was betrayed. You remember that? Here's what he said to them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. This is an amazing statement. And greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the Father. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. I will come to you. And then later, these things I have spoken to you while I still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. You remember those words in John's Gospel about Jesus? When Jesus instructed his disciples not to leave Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which they heard from him, he was talking about this, this promise of the Spirit, this promise of a helper who would be with him forever. That's what he's referring to. There are 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. 40 of those days, Jesus was still around, making numerous post-resurrection appearances, teaching about the kingdom of God, getting his disciples ready, telling them to stay put and wait. And then after 40 days, he ascended to heaven. They saw him leave, and then they saw him no more. And then they waited. Ten days they waited. Ten long days. They didn't know they had to wait ten days. They just knew they had to wait. They knew what he'd said. They knew what he'd promised about his asking the Father to send a helper. But that's all they knew. So they waited. Sinclair Ferguson makes a brilliant observation about all this. He says that just as the resurrection, the resurrection is the external visible evidence that Christ's sacrificial death was effective. That is, it worked. And the resurrection showed that visibly, proved that visibly. So too is Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the visible external evidence that Christ did ascend to the Father in all His glory. And He was serving as our King and Priest and a mediator, approaching the Father on behalf of His children. So Jesus is crucified. And the evidence that he conquered death and the grave was the resurrection. And then he spent 40 days preparing and comforting and assuring his disciples, getting them ready to take the reins of his ongoing kingdom work. And then he ascends and he's gone and they wait and they wait. And what is the sign that he's now with the Father? How do they know? How do they know that he's now in a place of honor and authority at the right hand of the Father? That he was in a position to approach the Father on his people's behalf. They know because of Pentecost which is coming. And so Jesus ascends, 10 days come and go, and then Jesus at just the right time, just the right time, with the Father's full agreement, asks him to now send 
the spirit that he promised. And whoosh, the spirit falls on God's people. They now know he's with the Father. Because he asked, and it happened. And the world has never been the same since that event. And the rest of our time in Acts is going to be spent exploring and understanding and applying and celebrating the outworking of that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you made us, and of course, because you made us, you are so understanding and considerate of how we are and what our limitations are and what our anxieties are. And um, we thank you, Father, that you give your people sharp signs and assurances and indicators of the things that happen in the spiritual realm that are unseen. And you give us visible things to hang on to, to be assured and comforted by. We thank you for the assurance and comfort and proof that the resurrection is, that the cross worked. We thank you, Father, now for um, the sending of your spirit, the proof that you, you did ascend to your Father. You did ask him to do that thing that you, he told his disciples he was going to ask the Father when he was with him. And he asked, and you sent, and they saw and experienced tangibly the results of that. And your church was strengthened and empowered, empowered and built up and equipped and commissioned. And we are still part of that commissioning we are part of the outworking of that in this room today. So, Father, help us to approach the study of this book with that sort of understanding that this is a story that we are caught up in that breaks into our own world and our own agendas and it reorders them and it challenges us to line ourselves up with what you are doing in the world. Help us to do that. Help us to grow through those things. We look forward to seeing how you're going to work within us and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll take up an offering for those who want to support uh, the work of this church and various ministries that this church supports.